0: Hey, they said they were going to the Twin Cities. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, is that useful to you?
1: Oh, you betcha, yeah. Yeah. When Fargo
2: came out in 1996, a whole lot of people in my home state were pissed. I'm Todd Milby, and this is The Drunk Projectionist, a podcast that's buzzed about movies. I was born in North Dakota, quite a ways from Fargo, but still in North Dakota. People there and here in Minnesota, where I now live, had never seen themselves portrayed in the movies. So when Fargo came out, and Francis McDormand and William H. Macy talked with those long O's and those yahs, people were offended. They said, we don't talk like that. Which is why, when I made a radio documentary about the movie, my co-producer and I called it... We don't talk like that. In the doc, we explore the Fargo accent with the film's dialect coach.
1: They wrote this piece in a musical form. It is written in the dialect.
2: William H. Macy reveals his take on Jerry Lundegaard, the husband who had his wife kidnapped.
3: In that weird way that actors can do it, I thought he was noble.
2: (laughs) And we hear from some people who are still angry about the whole accent
3: thing.
0: Yeah, we don't send human bodies through a wood chipper. We do murder people maybe, but not through a wood chipper.
2: Yeah, that's a fine distinction. Stay tuned. The Drunk Projectionist is next.
1: From Two Below Zero, independent producers of Public Media...
4: Hi there, I'm Bruce Bonney, a lifelong Minnesotan and an actor in the Twin Cities. Back in the 1990s, I had a bit of a break in a movie.
1: Where is everybody?
4: Well, it's cold, Margie. That's me playing the part of Deputy Lou in the movie Fargo. Maybe you remember that. In this scene, I offer a cup of coffee to police chief Marge Gunderson, played here by Francis McDormand. We're cops investigating murder, malfeasance.
1: Ooh! What you got there?
4: Argy. right, thought you might need a little warm up.
1: Thanks a bunch. So what's the deal now? Gary says
4: triple homicide? Yeah, looks pretty bad. Two of them are over here. So the movie comes out in 1996. It's a grisly story rooted in the snowy Midwest. It's about a car salesman who arranges to have his wife kidnapped. Things don't go so well for him, or anybody really. Despite that scene with the wood chipper, or maybe because of it, the movie is a hit. Fargo grosses $60 million and scores several Academy Award nominations, including one for Best Picture. Well, heck, my co-star, Frances, even won an Academy Award for Best Actress. The Oscar goes to Francis McDormand in Fargo! These days, the fascination with Fargo continues. There's a TV series called Fargo. It's also violent, and to outsiders, it's kind of funny. Mostly because of the accent. Which reminds me of the name of this documentary. It's called We Don't Talk Like That, Fargo and the Midwest Psyche. The producers are a couple from Minneapolis, Diane Richard and Todd Melby. They've called it that because when the movie came out, that's what a lot of folks around here said. We don't talk like that. Let's begin with that accent. Here's Diane Richard and Todd Melby.
2: It's Saturday in Fargo, North Dakota, tailgate time at the university for the Bison football game. In the parking lot near the Fargo Dome, it's a field of green and yellow.
5: Now, when you're making a documentary about the movie Fargo...
2: Of course, we had to go to Fargo. Well,
5: Fargo, of course.
2: Thing is, in 1996, when Fargo the film first came out, many folks around here hated the movie. Hated it. Hated how they were portrayed, and how characters based on them sounded on the screen.
5: All big parkas and exaggerated Scandinavian accents. So
2: we came here today to hear the Fargo dialect for ourselves.
5: Let's go
6: bison!
7: Let's go bison!
5: Along the way, we met some very generous bison fans.
7: What are you cooking up? Walleye and
5: halibut! You guys are just so friendly, you give it away for free? Oh, yeah. Do you want tartar sauce or anything? Did you make it? This is homemade. That's homemade tartar sauce, yep.
8: Yum! Oh, good! Well, thanks for stopping by. Yeah, thanks
0: thanks so Yeah. And enjoy North Dakota. Well, ew.
6: Yeah.
0: Horns up! Woo!
2: Horns up! That's the call of the North Dakota State University Bison, a team that's won a bunch of small college football championships. How you guys doing?
0: Good!
2: We sidle up to two friends, Leah Chalmers and Jason Swart.
0: We asked them what they thought
5: of the movie Fargo.
2: Yeah, I wasn't a
9: fan.
0: I wasn't a fan either because that's really not how we are. I mean, no. seriously. And you, know you know what? They didn't, even, they didn't even. They didn't right. even film it here. If right. they were gonna like really do it, don't go to Bemidji. Right. Film it here. It's here, northern Minnesota, northern North Dakota, and yeah, we don't send human bodies through a wood chipper. We do murder people, maybe, but not through a wood chipper.
9: <laughs> yeah, you might want to. You might want to not put that in your documentary.
2: <laughs> Is there such a thing as a Fargo exit?
9: I think they overaccentuate the accent. It's not that bad. We're not from Canada, you know.
0: I gotta say, Jason, hey. you sound exactly like the dude on there. You totally do. <laughs> so why do you think
5: so many people had trouble with the accent in the after they saw the movie from around here? Well, because they overdid it a bit.
0: Because they're not from here. They really yeah. don't. They have to work hard to sound like that. It comes naturally yeah. you know, for us. They don't
9: come here and like talk to us. They just like, oh, they must talk like that up over there then.
0: <laughs> we do sound like that, I'm going to say. Exactly. When I first saw the movie, I'm like, oh my God, we it's do not sound that like that. It's not that bad, though. It is it's that totally bad. It's totally not that bad. It is. Hi,
1: it's March.
2: The actor Frances McDormand played Police Chief March Gunderson. She took her verbal cues from this woman.
1: My name is Elizabeth Himmelstein, and I'm a dialect coach.
2: Himmelstein was the dialect coach for the movie. She's worked on dialects for over 120 movies.
5: Himmelstein says a pure Fargo accent has long o's
1: and strong e's. An example is when Marge says, "Oh my, where? Oh my, where? Yeah, yeah. Oh, jeez. Oh, jeez."
5: Those intonations come from the Swedish, Norwegian, and German stock that settled the plains more than a century ago.
2: And they were familiar sounds to the ears of Joel and Ethan Cohn, who grew up in a suburb of Minneapolis. So when they wrote the script, they included words like "g's" and blee me. Shorthand for Believe Me, again, Elizabeth Himmelstein.
1: They wrote this piece in a musical form. It is written in the dialect. They always know exactly how everybody should be sounding. Also, Ethan had tapes that he had already put together. Those tapes captured the vocal patterns
2: of a couple from northern Minnesota, and they were gold for Himmelstein. So not only was the script written in dialect, those tapes told Himmelstein the specific sounds the Cone brothers wanted.
1: Fargo was really the only film that I've ever worked on that really allowed for the dialect to almost be another character.
2: Before filming, the cast huddled with Himmelstein in Minneapolis. The Cohn brothers were also on site. They spent two weeks working on the dialect.
1: Actors came to me privately and just said, thank you so much for teaching this. This is fun. I I really like it. But I'm not going to do it like that.
2: Seems some actors were reluctant to go all in on the dialect. Until one day...
1: We all were living together in a hotel. Everybody, the whole crew, the directors, the actors, and it was freezing outside, so we never left. So we go from the rehearsal room... We get into an elevator and go up to another floor where they had sort of a food bazaar uh, fest.
2: Around here in the Midwest, we call that a buffet.
1: So we would go there, and one day we were all in the elevator, and we this woman started speaking, and she said something like, Oh, yeah, it's real cold out there. Oh, I know, I know, the other one said, I know. It's like, See you later, you betcha. And... One of the actors turned to me. We got off the elevator. He said, I'm doing it. I'm in. So who was it? What? Who was it? It was Bill Macy.
3: (laughs) Uh, I'm William H. Macy, and I played Jerry Lundergaard in Fargo. Jerry Lundergaard was the film's
2: protagonist, a sad sack who had his wife kidnapped for cash.
3: Liz would help us with the way one shapes the word, you know... uh, That, oh, for Pete's sake, that, oh, you have to make a real round um, hole in your face. (laughs) Hole in your face, well, yeah, or your mouth. You have to make your mouth round to go, oh, for Pete's sake. Macy
2: had been in a handful of films, mostly playing minor parts. He was looking for his
3: defining role. I read the script, and I thought it was beautifully well-written. And it felt fresh and new, and it was a great story, and uh, I was determined to get the role because I thought then and always, this is huge. But the part
2: Macy initially auditioned for was small, as Marge's deputy. It's hard to imagine that he almost wasn't Jerry.
3: I think Ethan said, uh, that's real good. You want to um, read Jerry? And I said, oh boy, do I ever. So I went out in the hall and I worked on it a little bit. I went back inside the room and read for Joel and Ethan and they said that's real good you want to go home and work on it and come back tomorrow and I said yes I do so I went home called every actor I know they did turns and I learned the whole script and went through the thing and went back in and read again and they said that's real good we'll let you know and then I found out that they were auditioning in New York So I got my Lutheran ass on an airplane and flew to New York and sort of crashed the audition. And I said, I want to audition again. I'm worried you're going to make a mistake on this thing and cast somebody else. I was nothing if not bold. After landing the part, Macy had to
2: figure out how to inhabit his character, a bumbler who sets up a blizzard of bloody mayhem.
3: To do that, he had to see things Jerry's way. I completely understood his point of view. I completely knew why he was doing what he was doing in that weird way that actors can do it. I thought he was noble. (laughs) I mean, the way I interpreted it, I'm not an idiot. I mean, I know he's one of the greatest fools in American letters, but the way I decided to play it was that it was a man fighting for his family, and he was willing to do just about anything to ensure the safety and comfort and the future of his family. Here,
2: Jerry hits up his wife's father, and his business partner, for cash to buy a parking lot. All
3: right, How are you, Stan? How you doing, Wade? Good to see you again, Jerry. If these numbers are right. This looks pretty sweet. Oh, those numbers are right, all right. Believe me. This is doable. Congratulations, Jerry. Yeah, thanks, Stan. Well, it's a pretty, uh... what kind of finder's fee are you looking for? Huh? And so uh, if the father-in-law was going to be intractable, I would have to go outside the normal rules of engagement to win. And it just spiraled out of control.
2: Macy is a native of Georgia. In addition to mastering a Midwestern dialect, he took on certain regional mannerisms under the Cohn brothers' direction.
3: There are a couple of things that Joel and Ethan wanted that I thought were really charming, and one of them was as soon as you walk in the house, you got to stomp your feet to get the snow off. God bless them. That's sort of the music of living in the North.
2: Another mannerism exclusive to the North is the sagging dismay of finding one's windshield covered with ice and the contortions that it takes to clear it. In Jerry's bleakest moment, After he'd pitched a business deal that he thought would solve all of his problems, Macy acts out that winter-fueled rage.
3: When I go back to my car after uh, Harv Presnell has said, uh, we're not going to give you the money, Jerry. Uh, We don't do that. We're going to develop the parking lot. And and I'm furious, and um, I start scraping the windshield of the car, and... they were pretty specific about me losing my <laughs> <shit>. <laughs> I guess I, I did a take or two and, and uh, it was probably Ethan who said no man, I'm, go for it go, lose your mind here so I just kept ratcheting it up I think I ended up breaking two or three ice scrapers.
5: (laughs) Jerry Lundegaard wasn't the only frustrated character in the movie. Mike Yanagita was too. He's the guy who meets the very pregnant police chief Marge Gunderson at a hotel bar, an old high school friend.
7: Hi, my name is Stephen Park. I was Mike Yanagita. In the movie Fargo?
5: We talked to Stephen about that hotel bar scene.
2: It's something we'll do a few times this hour. Call an actor and have him describe a scene.
7: Quite often I hear it was my favorite scene in the whole movie. (laughs) I hear that all the time.
5: We thought this scene was important because it's so emotionally raw and odd. It begins with Marge approaching Mike at a booth.
7: She arrives. Mike? Marge? Marge? Geez, you look great!
1: Geez!
7: Oh, you look great!
1: Yes, so do you. Oh, easy there. easy there. Easy there. Easy there. You do too.
7: I remember I had a padded belly and she had her padded thing and I remember like be- our bellies bouncing against each other as I was like squeezing her really tight. And then she was like, okay, okay. And then she's kind of pushing me away. Then we're, Then we're sitting down. And then there's that kind of awkward moment. So, So, Chief Gunderson then, so you went and married Narm's son of a Gunderson?
1: Oh yeah, a long time ago. Great,
3: great.
7: Yeah, I think that I was probably plotting that the whole time, like finding the moment to move and then I just did it. It's like, you mind if I sit over here? And then uh, I put my arm around her and then just trying to get cozy. You mind if I sit over here? Uh, I was married to Linda Cooksey.
1: No, why don't you sit over there? I prefer that.
7: Huh? Oh. Uh, okay. I think he's done. Sorry.
1: Oh, uh, no, I no, just so I can see. I don't have to turn my neck. Oh, sure, sure.
7: I, I understand. <laughs> There's so many clues that he's, uh, he's not well. <laughs> and, um, and how desperate he is. And, you know, the whole time I was playing the scene, I had this sense that he was crying inside the whole time. He was just crying out of sheer pain and loneliness. I, I was kind of carrying that with me through the whole scene, and then at the end, just uh, allowing myself to just kind of ex- be exposed. I'm sorry, it's, uh, you know, I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't have done this, I should I, I thought we'd have a really terrific time. It's okay, Mike. You were such a super lady. And then, <laughs> I've been so lonely. I just tapped into that that sense of alienation, and I think the fact that he's an Asian American character has a lot to do with his sense of alienation, especially you know in that particular area of the country. So to me, when I shot the scene, it was just uh it was just very painful and then I remember when the film started screening, and I got a call from uh, ethan and uh he was like, oh, we just screened it, and you were hilarious. It was so funny, and I was like, what? And uh, it wasn't until I saw the movie that I could get the humor of it, but I was so inside the character, I didn't, I didn't capture the humor of it at the time.
4: I'm Bruce Bonnie, who played Deputy Lou in the movie Fargo. Little known fact, remember Shep Proudfoot, the ex-con who worked at Jerry's car dealership?
1: So do you remember getting a call Wednesday night?
4: Nope.
1: You do reside there at 1425 Fremont Terrace? Yep. Anyone else residing there?
4: No. I actually did his voice. Yep. Nope. That was me. Anywho, I'm heading back to my prowler for a little nap. Oh, too much Arby's. Producers Diane and Todd will pick it up from here. It's Oscar night, 1997.
1: Live! From Los Angeles, California, the 69th Annual Academy Awards.
5: And it's Oscar night, 1997, Fargo, North Dakota.
10: Yeah, we're in Fargo. This is the Oscar party to beat
8: all Oscar parties, right? It's going to be the best. Yeah, everybody's going to be wishing they were here when they hear about the Ludafisk and the lefsa.
2: That's Fargo native Kristen Rudrud talking to a local reporter. She played Jean Lundegard, the kidnap victim in Fargo.
8: But
5: before all the Hollywood-style hubbub, there was just a local tourism official in a dark theater, hoping for the best.
11: I always get popcorn and Diet Coke, and usually uh, I've got some uh, Dots and some Junior Mints. I'm a real uh, salty, sweet uh, kind of guy.
2: Imagine your job is to get visitors to come to Fargo, North Dakota.
11: I'm uh, Cole Carley.
2: Back in the 90s, Cole Carley was in charge of the Fargo Moorhead Visitors and Convention Bureau.
5: A tough sell because North Dakota is, one, the least visited place in the US, and two, in winter, it's cold. It's bitter cold. It's nostril freezing cold.
11: I know this is hard for you to believe, but Fargo was not exactly a top of mind destination. Actually still isn't.
5: So he turned to the marketing gods for a slogan.
11: Our promise statement was more than you expect. Uh, one of the reasons was that they didn't expect much, so uh, that was easy to live up to.
5: The place itself, once you get here, is actually a pretty easy sell. It's home to North Dakota State University. It's a tech center anchored by a Microsoft campus. It's got a lively art scene.
2: But still, Fargo-Moorhead is in the dead center of North America.
11: You know, you start getting out past central Minnesota, and there's a lot of people that uh, that are pretty sure that it's getting towards the end of the world.
5: Then a miracle happens. A movie with your town's name arrives in theaters to rave reviews.
2: But it's not exactly the picture postcard the locals imagined. From
11: the creators of Barton Fink.
3: I'm cooperating here. And there, there's no uh, you be there in 30 minutes where I find you, Jerry, and I shoot you, and I shoot your wife, and I shoot all your little children, and I shoot
8: all the back of your little heads. You got it?
3: You should shoot the other guy. Oh, geez. Fargo.
11: Oh, yeah, they said, they said, that that was disgusting, you know, and the way they had to swear and all that blood and, you know, and and they talked so, I said, the way they talk, I grew up with people that talk like that. I know people that talk like that. So Carly did what any good marketer would do. I bought 100 copies of it and took it to trade shows for meeting planners and gave them out.
5: You know what they say about publicity.
11: Just say the name. Say the name. Say the name.
2: (laughs) Fargo. Carly wasn't the only person who saw Fargo's potential. Margie Bailey was a fundraiser at the time at the historic Fargo Theater. She worked her angles to debut the film on the theater screen instead of the local multiplex, owned by a company called Marcus.
12: They were insisting on sending the movie Fargo to the Marcus Theaters, you know, even though I said that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. We're in Fargo, it's the Fargo Theater, the movie Fargo should be on our screen. Think about it, how stupid is that? So that's it, end of story. (laughs) As they say in the movie Fargo.
2: (laughs) Bailey won the battle. The movie Fargo had its regional premiere at the Fargo Theater, and folks lined up to see it.
12: She described the scene for us. It wasn't pretty. Budging in line, that kind of thing. It was not Fargo nice. No, it was not. There was maybe not fisticuffs. Maybe that's a little strong. That would be a little strong. I would say some major shoving. The lights went down. The movie started. There was a lot of laughter during the film. I watched people watching the film, and and then they left. We don't talk about it right then. We wait until we get, you know, to a safe place, and then we say what we really think.
2: Trouble was, Fargo was not actually filmed in Fargo, just like those folks at the football tailgating party said. Except for one scene, it doesn't even pretend to take place in Fargo. Most of the action happens in Brainerd and Minneapolis. Minnesota, not North Dakota.
5: That rubbed some North Dakotans raw. And like we said earlier, so did the way the locals were portrayed. Furry hats, funny accents, all that. Again, Cole Carley.
11: You had about as many people that hated the movie as liked it because the people that hated it were kind of taking it personally. And we'd have to tell them it wasn't a documentary. It was a movie. They made this up, okay?
2: (laughs) Beyond the dialect, Margie Bailey said folks were chapped about all that snow in the movie.
12: I think people felt insulted that their weather was really, really insulted as well. But you can look at it and say, oh, they're making fun of us. They're making fun of our accent. You know, they think that we're just unintelligent, sort of snow-shoveling people. In recent years, there's been quite a thaw.
5: A local microbrewery started making an ale called Woodchipper.
2: And the actual Woodchipper from the movie has become a tourist attraction.
5: People put on funny hats with ear flaps and pose with it. Some even pretend to feed their puppies and babies into it.
2: <laughs> Which is kind of <laughs> funny. Carly says that the region comes by its dark humor honestly. He says the Cone brothers were on to something when they called their movie Fargo.
11: No place is perfect. There was a branch of the Ku Klux Klan in my hometown in Castleton years ago. And when, when Fargo and Moorhead were, were kind of frontier towns, uh, you couldn't drink in Fargo because North Dakota was a dry state. But that's where the Red Light District was, and the bars were in Moorhead. So it was this kind of combination of liquor and lust, and you'd have a wagon that would go back and forth between the two cities, uh, to the Red Light District and back to the bars, and Red Light District and back to the bars. In amongst this Minnesota, North Dakota nice, there, there is this group of people that uh, uh, you don't wanna know. So
5: why exactly did the Cohen brothers call their movie Fargo?
2: Actor William H. Macy wondered that, too.
3: Well, I asked Ethan why you, they decided to call it Fargo, and he said they didn't think anybody would go see a movie called Brainerd. By the way, I thought that was funny. We did, too, but he wasn't the first one to tell us that.
5: Bob Cogill is a film professor in Minneapolis. He has another theory.
6: I, I read Fargo as, as being um, a sort of symbolic No man's land like Chinatown is in Chinatown. But for Jake Giddies,
11: nothing is what it seems in Chinatown.
5: So Kogil says both Fargo and Chinatown represent mysterious places of unfathomable horror.
6: For me, the film is deepened, and this metaphor of Fargo is deepened by the cinematography of Roger Deakins. I mean, you've got that title coming on with that wonderful soundtrack as we see a car emerging, even with its lights on, out of the vast whiteness. And it's hard not to then fix Fargo as a sort of place of the soul of something emerging out of out of, you know, the whiteness of the whale, the whiteness of of the horror of where does darkness come from, where does evil come from.
5: Did you catch those references? Kogil likens Fargo to classics like Chinatown, Moby Dick, Apocalypse Now. But that doesn't mean he liked it.
6: When I first saw it, I absolutely hated it. I ha- I hated it so much.
5: What he loathed was the Cohen brothers' brand of postmodern irony.
6: The, the movie Fargo has qualities about it that I think people like about the Cohen's, and you see them in all, in all of their films. It's this flat affect tonality that allows for deadpan juxtapositions of violent responses. It's almost a grotesque kind of humor where they invite out of their audience these almost irreconcilable responses. You, you're horrified and yet you're laughing.
5: For Kogil, the treatment of Jerry's wife, Jean, is a case in point.
6: She is meant for us to laugh at, and her neurosis as a classic, self-canceled, Scandinavian, nice woman who who has been, uh, totally played the role. We see her chopping the carrots in her, her first scene, and she immediately says, hi, hon, how you doing, in her flat voice. Hello?
13: Yeah, hi, hon.
6: Oh, hi, Dad.
13: Jerry around?
6: Yeah, hi. Yeah, he's here. Yeah, I'll catch him for you, huh? Yeah, no. yeah, it's Dad. They made her so funny, so awkward, uh, yeah. and, and it—I mean, it's—it's it's sort of a brilliant scene when she is hiding in the shower, and and in her fear, you know, she makes the wrong move and she falls down the stairs. No, 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 no. She is tortured to death through her through her idiocy and we are meant to laugh at that but she's not given her moment of dignity ever ever
5: neither Cogill says is north dakota and minnesota it's a treatment other regions have long suffered with the movie fargo the north finally feels the slap of stereotype cinema
6: for once we were hearing the accent of northern Minnesotans and Scandinavians uh, handled in a way that made it sound like we were used to having Hick Southerners dealt with. You know, we're very used to that stereotype. We're very used to laughing at the hee-haw sort of joke. That becomes acceptable. And I had a close friend who was a, a Southerner and a professor who he was gleeful when this movie came out because he said, as a Southerner, I've been dealing with this sort of thing all my life, and I'm so glad now to see Minnesotans squirm, where you get the stereotype Shoved in your face, and you have to see yourself portrayed as a yokel. Not everyone had trouble
13: with how we Northerners were portrayed. My name is Bane Belkey. I am the uh, former artistic director and founder of the Jungle Theater in Minneapolis. My role in the film was Mr. Mora.
2: Bane Belkey was born in a hockey town near the Canadian border. He landed a tiny yet memorable role in Fargo
13: as a bartender in a park. How
4: are you doing, Mr. Mora? Yeah. Officer Olsen. Yeah, right-o.
13: I have a little bungalow I rent on the top of an old Mexican hotel in Puerto Vallarta. And this elderly man was sitting across from my door in one of the chairs outside on the roof. And he said, weren't you in Fargo? And I said, yes, I was. So I'm tending bar down there at Eklund and Swedlands last Tuesday. And this little guy's drinking. And he says, so where can a guy find some action? I'm going crazy out there at the lake. And all of the actors who went in and auditioned for the part of Mr. Morris said, you've got to have Bain come in and read for this. Because, of course, I was born in northern Minnesota, in Waroad, Minnesota. And I have the authentic, you know, Minnesota accent. And I says, what kind of action? And he says, woman action. What do I look like? And I says, well, what do I look like? I don't arrange that kind of thing. And he says, but I'm going crazy out there at the lake. And I says, yeah, but this ain't that kind of place. Uh Uh-huh. I didn't think it was a real film. I thought it was sort of an indie film. No one asked me if I knew my lines, and I, was, I just went, and we didn't rehearse it, you know. Then they took me to this location, which was a, like a Rambler house on the outskirts of Hallock, Minnesota, and Prop Man gave me a broom, a push broom, to sweep my driveway. And I thought that, I thought, who are these people? You know, no self respecting Minnesotan sweeps their driveway in the winter. You know, it's just unheard of. Looks like she's going to turn cold tomorrow. Oh, yeah. Got a front coming in. Yeah, you got that right.
4: I'm Bruce Bonney, who played Deputy Lou in the movie. I'm the guy who got the license plates wrong. Uh huh. So, I got the state looking for a Sierra with a tag starting DLR. They don't got no match yet.
1: I'm not sure that I agree with you 100% on your police work there, Lil. Yeah? Yeah. I think that vehicle there probably had dealer plates. DLR.
4: Oh, DLR. It means dealer. Boy, that police chief Gunderson, she's sharp as a stick. Now it's time to hear about Fargo from people who have something in common with Margie, uh, or uh, Police Chief Gunderson. Minnesota women in law enforcement. Diane, tell those officers that Deputy Lou from up Brainerd says hi.
8: Beg and plead and say, oh, we'll make her hot dish." Yeah, hot dish, yes.
5: I'm at a police station in Columbia Heights, Minnesota. With me are seven female cops. For me, it like really hit close to home. That's Tina Kill. She's a sergeant with the police department in St. Paul.
10: Because I was a new officer as well, I just had come on in 95. I also was pregnant at the same time she was.
5: Until Marge, most female cops in movies or on TV chased bad guys in high heels and tight skirts. Think policewoman or Charlie's Angels. But then came Marge Gunderson.
10: She was inspiring, actually, because that helped me realize, oh, my gosh, she's pregnant, and yet she can be a police officer. And I had never seen a pregnant police officer in the TV shows or movies or anything before. So that was like, oh, my gosh, she can do it. I can do it. You can still be a police officer and have a family.
5: Most of these cops identify with Marge. Frances McDormand, who played the character, called her a pregnant superhero, so to
10: me, it was inspiring. Outside of, you know, the comicality of the don't you know and the way she talked and then her doofus husband, she really was the brains behind the whole organization.
5: Sarah Nassett is a sergeant with the St. Paul Police Department. She pipes in from across the room.
10: Like, I mean, she had morning sickness and threw up and just went and did her job. And that's what I thought was great because we women do that every day.
4: You see something down there, chief? No,
1: I just think I'm going to barf.
10: She wasn't um, over the top bullying or in your face. And I think she got a lot more information out of it with them unwittingly giving it to her. And it was quite funny to see that because that, is, that happens even to this day as a female. I've used it. What are you talking about? What do you mean? I, you know, could you explain it to me? Uh, they're like, oh, well, she, she's so dumb. She won't get this. I could just say whatever. And they just slip up.
5: When Fargo came out, only about 10% of cops were women. It's not much higher today, about 12%. And very few of those women are police chiefs, like the fictional Marge. As much as she admired Marge, Sarah prefers badass movie cops.
10: I don't know. I think I like Dirty Harry better sometimes. <laughs> Go ahead, make my day. <laughs>
5: uh, On duty, you use
10: that line? Uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> no, I, I, uh, I I have used it once. It was during a domestic, and the guy was uncooperative. I said, just go ahead and make my day. You can do it the easy way or we're going to do the hard way because I have a blue wave of backup coming. And then I think it clicked, and he (laughs) decided to just come over and put his hands around his back. But, uh, yeah, just once. I I don't think it would be appropriate to use that too often.
5: (laughs) (laughs) It was great to talk to a room full of cops about the movie. But we decided we wanted to watch it with a cop,
6: too.
8: Well, here we go. It's a rainy Tuesday night, and here we are with Lucy Gerald, and we are going to watch Fargo tonight, a movie I haven't seen in years. So I'm curious to see what my reaction is going to be. And and what were you doing until recently in your career? I was a Minneapolis police officer and commander with the Minneapolis Police Department. All right. Well, uh, let's start the film. And are you comfortable? You can kick off any pillow...
5: Okay.
2: Lucy Gerald's no one you want to mess with. After 25 years as a cop, reaching nearly the highest rank in her department, she's an imposing presence.
5: Lucy is a former neighbor of ours. We always felt safe when she wore her Kevlar and sidearm to neighborhood meetings.
2: Watching a crime movie with Lucy is a little like celebrating Easter with an atheist. Lucy has a hard time suspending disbelief, like when Jerry's wife Jean, gets kidnapped.
8: So where was that fight when the cop was there? That's what's so crazy. She fought in the house now she's fighting. she's in the snow barefoot, she's trying to run. It doesn't make any sense that she wouldn't have been fighting or raising a stink in the car.
5: Once Jerry discovers his wife is gone, Lucy starts thinking like a criminal, a better one than Jerry would ever be.
8: It's terrible. (laughs) He's so stupid. He should be calling 911 and reporting that his house has been broken into and his wife is missing. He's got a perfect cover. It's just the great crime scene.
3: (laughs) Whoa. Whoa, daddy.
8: You forgot a lot of this? Yeah. We haven't even met Marge yet. I know, I know. And then,
5: indelibly, we do.
1: Okay. So we got a trooper pull someone over. We got a shooting. These folks drive by. There's a high-speed pursuit. Ends here, and then this execution-type deal. Yeah. I'd be very surprised if our suspect was from Brainerd.
2: And as far as Lucy's concerned, Marge's reaction is a big disconnect. We hit pause while Lucy reacts.
1: You
8: might be containing your emotions, but you wouldn't be lighthearted like that at all. At all. This is one of the worst stressors in policing, is that one of your fellow cops got shot and killed. This is the s***, and... You just don't respond lighthearted like that.
5: Lucy does give Marge props for her police work, following leads, confronting suspects, all in her nice sing-song
1: way. Now, I saw some rough stuff on your priors, but nothing in the nature of a homicide. I know you don't want to be an accessory to something like that. So you think you might remember who those folks were who called you? She's,
8: She's being so sweet about it. It's charming, it's disarming, it is kind of sweet, but she's, her words have, are, are packing a punch. I mean, you could go back to the joint. That's not a sweet place. But then Lucy loses it again. It's at that scene late in the
5: movie.
12: Well, we got a lead on this. There's a car, there's a car. Whose car? My car, my
1: car. Tan Sierra, Tan Sierra. Okay, careful, Margie. I'll send a couple cars
5: when Marge leaves her squad car to go confront a killer who is busy feeding his partner into a wood chipper.
8: Now, you've got at least three or four people dead associated with this car. You don't get out by yourself and go investigate. Okay, now you go back to your car and you wait till someone else shows up because this guy is showing you who he is.
5: So no cop would do this? No,
8: no, no. He can't kill anybody else. Everybody around here is dead. So you've got nothing but time. You've got nothing but time. So for us, she looks like a kick-ass, yeah.
5: but it's just...
8: Can you, if you want to put on that hat, you can say, yeah, that's impressive, but it's really stupid. That's her takeaway,
5: from one career cop to another. Marge, the heroine of Fargo, isn't sly like a fox. She's lucky as a squirrel that falls out of a tree onto a nut pile.
2: But she's also really sweet. She clearly loves her husband, Norm, a guy who likes to fish. In the midst of investigating a triple homicide, she takes the time to pick up night crawlers for him.
14: Uh, John Carroll Lynch and I played Norm Gunderson in
2: the film Fargo. John's going to take us through that sweet domestic scene
14: she tucks into bed and the ubiquitous television is on and they're snuggling in together he has this news you know that he's been wanting to tell her for a while they announced it
12: they announced it yeah so
14: three cent stamp
1: you're mallard
14: yeah Oh, that's
1: terrific.
14: It's just a three cent. It's terrific. Hoffman's blue-winged teal got the 29 cent. People don't much use the three cent. Tells her in such a Minnesotan way, you know, uh, which is kind of surreptitiously sideways and uh, kind of an aw-shucks nature to it, you know, very, very, uh, you know, attempting to maintain stoicism. But she will have none of it.
1: Oh, for peace. Of course they do. Whenever they raise the postage, people need the little stamps.
14: Yeah?
6: When they're stuck with a bunch of the old ones.
14: You know, she's excited for him, and she also knows that he's excited. But he can't be excited until she is.
1: It's terrific. I'm so proud of you, Norm. Heck, Norm, you know, we're doing
14: pretty good. I love you, Margie. I love you, Norm. You know, it's funny when you think about it, uh, uh, there's a, a Marge going out in the world and dealing, you know, confronting people who are, who are chopping people up in wood chippers and Norm is busy uh, making wildlife art, <laughs> making duck stamps. Uh, that's kind of a beautiful thing and the warmth of that relationship, the genuineness and love and non-ironic affection that they have for each other is the only relationship like that that I can think of in a, in a Coen Brothers movie.
5: The warm relationship Marge had with Norm clearly touched a lot of people. So did Marge's dogged determination.
2: In an interview on NPR's Fresh Air, producer and co-writer Ethan Cohn had this surprising thing to say about Marge.
10: Well, you know, it's funny you say that. A lot of people liked her, and I'm, I'm sure that's why the movie did well. I always thought she was the bad guy.
8: What? The bad guy?
10: G- I, you know, I kind of found her a little bit alarming, as did Fran. We were all surprised, actually, that people liked her quite as much as they did. She is. Uh, she is definitely. I mean, there are admirable things about her, but she's also definitely uh, sure of herself to an alarming degree. I mean, uh, not certainly not given the introspection.
5: Now, wait a minute. Is this really the way Ethan Cohen feels, or is he messing with us?
2: The Cohn brothers are notoriously foxy. Their movies appear to say one thing, but sometimes they mean something else altogether. In interviews, which are rare, they turned us down. The Coens' answers are short and cryptic, and sometimes inconsistent, one to the next.
5: So we went to the source, the screenplay co-written by the Coens that won an Academy Award.
2: In the introduction, Ethan writes, quote, The story that follows is about Minnesota. It evokes the abstract landscape of her childhood, a bleak, windswept tundra resembling Siberia, except for its Ford dealerships and Hardy's restaurants. It aims to be both homey and exotic. (laughs) Homey
9: and exotic.
2: That's Tony Denman. He played Scotty, Gene and Jerry's teenage son.
9: And I'm proud to be a Minnesotan. So, you know, yeah sure you betcha forever, eh?
2: In the film, he's a typical Minnesota kid. He eats at McDonald's, he plays the accordion, and he loves hockey.
10: Yeah! Okay, well, that's why we... We don't want you going out for hockey. Oh, man. Come on, what's the big deal? It's just an hour.
9: Uh, Hold on. What's the big deal? Look, Dad, there's no way that I'm Scotty.
3: Hey, let's watch that language there.
5: He's not surprised that we're confused about what the Coen brothers are up to. Oh, I think that's probably their favorite thing.
9: Just make people try and, like, figure out what they're trying to do when perhaps maybe there's not even an answer behind what they're doing. They're just doing it.
5: Tony doesn't remember much from the shoot, apart from access to an endless supply of gummy bears on set. He was just a kid, but he does remember seeing the film later, at age 16. And I just remember thinking, oh my God, this is this is what it is? Wow, my parents let me do this? Today, Tony lives in L.A. He's married with a couple of kids. One of them is about the age of the fictional Scotty. Has he seen Fargo yet? Uh,
9: not yet. He's seen some of it. He knows of it. Uh, he's seen clips and pictures, but I think I'm going to wait a few more years to show him the whole, the whole shebang. I think it changes you. You know, you lose a little bit of innocence. What do you think they're doing with Mom?
3: It's okay, Scotty. They're not going to want to hurt her any. These men, they, they just want money.
9: Yeah, well, what if
3: something goes wrong,
9: Dad? No, then...
3: no, no. no.
9: I think that's probably what happened to me when I saw it the first time. I
3: went, oh, wow, okay, this happens. We got to play ball with these guys. Yes, Dan Grossman, he'll tell you the same thing. Yeah, but did. We're going to get mom back for you, but we got to play ball. That's, that's the deal here.
5: So did it happen? Did what happen? Did what we see on screen actually happen?
2: When the movie begins, words appear on the screen claiming that the film is a true story.
5: Not based on a true story, but a true
3: story.
2: That even stumped William H. Macy.
3: And then they did that weird thing at the beginning of saying, this is based on a true story. And I said, "Um, is it? What's the story? And they said, no, it's not based on a true story. I said, well, you can't say it's based on a true story if it's not. And they said, why not? And I said, well, I guess you got a point there.
5: In the end... The truth or truthiness of Fargo doesn't really matter much. What matters is what we see on the screen.
2: John Carroll Lynch, who played Norm, says he's a sucker for Fargo, even now. Every time he stumbles across it on TV, he's got to watch it.
5: He says it's a perfect film.
14: There's not a single moment in the film that's wasted. There's not a single character that isn't developed. There's not a single line that doesn't land. There's not a single scene that doesn't finish. There's not a single shot that isn't beautiful. There's not a single piece of music that isn't useful. It's emotionally powerful. It's funny. It's shocking and it's warm and has a huge beating heart in the center.
4: That's what makes it perfect. You've been listening to We Don't Talk Like That, Fargo, and the Midwest Psyche. Diane Richard and Todd Melby reported, wrote, and produced the documentary. And I'm Bruce Bonney. Oh, and one last thing. Did you know that a famous comedian got her start in Fargo? Here's William H. Macy. What about Amy Schumer? Amy Schumer. She
3: was one of the hookers.
0: Yeah, we both did. She went to college, too. I went to Normandale for about a year and a half. Yeah, that's where we met. But I dropped out, though. Yeah, she dropped. Yeah.
4: Check the credits. I'm pretty sure that's her.
0: I'll look, but I don't think so.
4: Funding was provided by the North Dakota Humanities Council. Oh, maybe I am wrong. Todd Melby is a fiscal year 2016 recipient of an artist initiative grant from the Minnesota State Arts Board. This activity is made possible by the voters of Minnesota through a grant from the Minnesota State Arts Board, thanks to a legislative appropriation from the Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.
3: It could still be Amy Schumer. I'm I'm pulling
4: it up. The Ethan Cohen interview appears courtesy of Fresh Air with Terry Gross. Fresh Air is produced at WHYY in Philadelphia and distributed by NPR. Podcasts are available at npr.org slash podcasts and at iTunes stand by uh. Diane Richard and Todd Melby are senior producers at two below zero more info is at two below that's the number two two below who are they
2: hooker number one hooker number two there we go Larissa Cokernut or Cockernut all right and uh, Melissa Peterman
3: I thought she was in that thing
5: but I think Amy Schumer would be very happy to think she was part of it
4: all right. So, I'm a fool. <laughs> <laughs> You're darn tooting, Jer. Maybe that's why you got caught in that motel. righty then. Thanks for listening.
2: My gosh, that was fun to make. Next time on The Drunk Projectionist, director Frederick Wiseman on his documentary classic, Titty Cut
4: Follies. I thought actually the guards at Bridgewater are more tuned in to the, uh, to the needs of the inmates than the so-called
2: middle-class helping professionals. That's Director Frederick Wiseman next time. Don't forget to write us a review on iTunes, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and all that good social stuff. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.